So good morning. You know, before COVID hit, of course, all I had to do was look around here, you know, because everybody was here and we had worship in person. And then COVID hit and I got used to just looking at the camera. And now I got to figure out how to do both. But I'm really thrilled that this is our second week to have in-person worship. Um, I know Many would like to come. I'm grateful for those who you're able to get a ticket, and I think even those on the waiting list, I believe, I may be wrong, but I think we got them all in today. So I want to welcome those of you who got here. It's nice to see your faces here. And of course, those online worshiping with us, thank you for joining us. Um, We read through the Sermon on the Mount this week in our yearly Bible read, which we're doing together as a church, reading through the Bible in a year. And I'm going to speak about the Sermon on the Mount uh, in detail in early 2021. So I don't want to speak about it today. Today, I just want to talk about the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which we call the Beatitudes. That's Matthew chapter 5. It starts the Sermon on the Mount. Before we talk about those, I've got a quiz for everybody, okay, about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. So question number one, why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, well, that's the easy one, all right? Because he was on a mountain when he gave it, right? Now, the second question is, what mountain was it? And if you don't know, you can join the rest of us because none of us know because it actually never says what mountain he is on. And so you may take your guesses. Tradition holds it that it's Mount Eremos, which is right at the Sea of Galilee. It's a sloping mountain that goes upward. And in fact, there's even a domed church there now, the Church of the Sermon on the Mount, because they traditionally believe that's where Jesus gave it. Now, some questions about the Beatitudes. Why are they called the Beatitudes? Why are they called the Beatitudes? Well, it's actually a transliteration from the Latin. It's not a translation. The Latin is Beate Sun, okay? That's, and all we did was transliterate that into an English word, Beatitudes, and that Latin word means happy or blessed. And I'm going to talk about that term blessed in just a minute. How many Beatitudes are there? Well, that also depends. Because some people will tell you that there's eight. And some people will tell you that there's nine. Simply because everyone starts with the same formula, blessed are. But you get to the end and there's two blessed are statements that are talking about the same situation, about people who reproach or persecute the one who follows Jesus. So some people, even though it's used twice, blessed are, put that together as one beatitude and others keep them separate as two. So I'm going to treat them as one. And so I'm going to be giving you and talking about the eight beatitudes this morning when we're together. Okay. Now. First, let me talk about the word blessedness. Blessedness, it it comes from the Greek word makarios, which is way more than emotions. And in fact, it doesn't actually mean emotions. It's talking about something that goes much deeper than that. It's really a statement of how Jesus views people. Those who follow the Beatitudes, those who live like the Beatitudes, will find themselves approved by God. So he approves of those of us who who live that way, and he's actually the one who is blessed when we live the pathway of the Beatitudes. 
It's always in connection with the heart. We talk about this all the time. It's not just knowledge. It's not just thinking about things, but it's about action that comes from the heart. Outward circumstances are never mentioned in these Beatitudes. Um, they, uh, in fact, the only outward circumstances mentioned in the Beatitudes are outward circumstances that happen to the one who has this deep inner peace. The last one talks about persecution and reproach that comes upon the one who seeks God with all his heart, right? So it's all about what's inside. It's about the kingdom of Christ and being satisfied with that. It's about inheriting the earth and being satisfied, obtaining mercy, seeing God and being called his sons and daughters, hungering and thirsting for more of Christ. Those are some of the words that come through in the Beatitudes. And actually, Christ suggests that it's only this inward situation, this inward nurturing that he wants us to have in following the Beatitudes that really makes the pathway for getting into heaven. And in fact, those who rely on outward things, such as wealth and comfort to, um, for their pleasures in life, really will find it much more difficult to get into paradise, to find their way into heaven. And the cool thing about this is, even though we read through the Beatitudes and we feel like, boy, that's a really high standard, Anybody can start that path at any moment because it doesn't come through your actions. It actually starts with you putting your faith in this God through Jesus. And in fact, F.B. Meyer, an old-time commentator, said this, there is no soul of man so illiterate, so lonely, so poor in the world's goods, so beset with hereditary sins and demonical temptations that may not at this moment step suddenly into the life of blessedness. You step into it by faith, okay? So that's what blessedness means. Now let's talk specifically about the, the eight Beatitudes, okay? So here's the first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it already starts with confusion, right? Because what in the world does poor in spirit mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? That sounds like an awful thing, right? To be poor spirited. But it doesn't mean to be poor spirited. It's not talking about someone with a lousy spirit, with a lousy nature, who's always critical, who's always complaining. And it's not talking about someone who has a poor self-image. It's not talking about someone who doesn't think he's worth anything. That's not what poor in spirit means. What it's talking about is one word, humility. Humility. It's talking about people who are humble. And humility is the basis to actually everything else that happens in our Christian life. It's the foundation from which everything we do, our faith in Christ, our walk with Christ, is built upon. Humility. It's talking about what it says in Isaiah 66 2. Isaiah 66 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. And this is God speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Micah 6 8 is fast becoming a verse of PAC where God says, What do I ask of you but these three things? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So humility, people who are humble, they pray honestly. They pray honestly. 
Pretty soon in our reading through the Bible in a year, we're going to come to the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who are in the temple and they're praying. And the Pharisee looks up to heaven and he's standing next to this tax collector and says, Lord, thank you for making me not like him because I'm so good. But then it says the tax collector can't even raise his eyes to heaven and just beats on his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And of course, which one did God hear? He heard the tax collector. And Jesus says that specifically in that parable. Because humble people pray honestly. Humble people are thankful. They're thankful, right? It's the prodigal son at the end of the story. He's not thankful at all in the beginning of the story or the middle of the story. But he gets to that place of humility and it makes him come back to his father and say thank you. Thank you for doing all you did. Will you please take me back? Humble people build other people up. Jesus, one of the last acts he did on this earth with his disciples was to wash his feet, wash the feet of the disciples. Absolutely humiliating act. And he did it intentionally because that's what he was trying to communicate to the disciples who had maybe thought that they had arrived. Humility is the basis for everything in our Christian life. In fact, humility helps you through COVID. You ever thought about that? This beatitude will help you through COVID. Are you transparent with God in your prayers? Are you? Are you praying honestly to him exactly how you feel and what you need? Have you thanked him lately for other things? You may be focusing on just the things going wrong in your life during COVID, but have you thanked him for his presence and the things that are going well? And are you focusing on the needs of others? Humility says, hey, I know I'm hurting, but there's other people hurting too, and I can probably help them. Humility helps you through COVID. Blessed are the poor in spirit, or the humble, for theirs, he says, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, everything in the world opposes this, right? We don't like to mourn. We avoid mourning. We avoid situations and experiences that make us mourn. We don't want to mourn. We fight this all the time. And it doesn't even make sense, right? Happy are those who are sad. I mean, it's, it's very confusing when you think about this. How can people who mourn actually be blessed? It's a hard verse to understand. This is probably one of the hardest verses to understand in the Beatitudes. But at the very least... It's talking about the loss of sensitivity. The loss of sensitivity. When we lose our sensitivity toward God and when we lose our sensitivity toward others, we get in a very dark place and probably in a desperate position. So that's what it's talking about at the very least. As a child of God, our consciences should mourn when God convicts us of sin and we should mourn when we see the pain of others. Now, there's improper mourning. I didn't get my way, right? That's improper mourning. Then there's proper mourning, which Jesus showed us when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who had died, and Jesus wept. But then there's even a step above that. There's godly mourning. There's godly mourning. The Greek here is a really strong word for mourning, and it's talking about something deep. And I think it's expressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief... That's real mourning. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. 
Mourning makes us real, right? We feel pain. We feel our pain. We feel our pain when we hurt others. We feel our pain when we sin against God. And we feel the pain of others. It helps us to see us and everyone as being people who are image bearers of God. Kelvin Walker, our district superintendent who spoke here yesterday, used that phrase a lot, and I love that phrase. We're all image bearers of God, and it helps us to see others as image bearers as well. It also helps us to realize who God is and see God in a better light because this is a God who mourned, right? This is a God who sacrificed and painfully let his son die on the cross, It helps us see God with more gratitude, knowing that he was one who mourned as well. I think the first thing that's going to happen to us when we get to eternity and we're in heaven is that God is going to use his hand to wipe away the last tear that we'll ever have when we're there. But in the meantime, we're not there. And in the meantime, until then, he comes beside us when we hurt waiting and wanting to comfort us. And that's what he's trying to say in this beatitude. There's a blessing designed for the pain we feel during COVID, right? You will be comforted. God is there. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the most countercultural beatitude there is, Right? We never use the word meek about ourselves. We hate that word, right? Anybody ever put meek under characteristics on a resume, right? Oh, yes, I'm meek. You need to hire me because I'm meek, right? We avoid that word. We avoid that word. We despise it because it's contrary to our nature, and it's contrary to our nature because we misunderstand it. We think the synonym for meekness is spineless, right? Someone who's spineless. That's our view of meekness. Do you think Jesus was spineless? Easy question, right? But Jesus himself said, I am meek and lowly in heart. No, better synonyms for meekness are words like gentleness, yieldedness, patience, forbearance, Meekness is the opposite of having self-will toward God, right? Instead of saying, I'm going to do it my way, you're actually looking up to God and humbly saying, I'm going to do it your way. It's also the opposite of having ill will toward other people. We don't have ill will toward them, no matter who they are, because they are indeed image bearers of God. It's a strength that's under God's control. In fact, Paul lists it in the fruit of the Spirit. So those of us who are under the Spirit's control will be meek. We will show these characteristics of gentleness, yieldedness, patience, and forbearance. I'll give you a current political example. Now I got everybody's attention, right? So someone who's meek has high standards. He still has standards and principles that they live for. Jesus was meek, but he cleared the temple, right? So you have standards, but you would never talk about them the way the presidential candidates did on the last debate. Because meekness doesn't belittle, and meekness doesn't shout over, right? Meekness is about, not about not having principles, but it's about applying them with 
the characteristics of gentleness, yieldedness, patience, and forbearance. These are the ones who inherit the earth, right? The meek will inherit the earth because they will get it God's way by being his people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We can change the words hungering and thirsting to say something like desire, ambition. Those are good words in our culture, right? Blessed are the ones who really desire righteousness, who have an ambition to be a righteous person, who really hunger and thirst after righteousness. And when you do that, what you're hungering and thirsting for are things like integrity, virtue, purity of life, correctness of thinking and speaking and acting. It's a personal holiness that involves having a clear conscience between me and God, but also one between me and other people. It's Paul in Philippians 3.10. He says this, that I may know him, meaning Jesus, right? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. He wants to share in Christ's sufferings. He is so hungering and thirsting after righteousness that he is willing to pursue the sufferings of Christ if it will make him more righteous. It's Peter in his second letter when he says this. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You can even hear Peter saying, hey, you got to grow in this grace and knowledge. And he's getting excited about it. He's starting to preach. It becomes a prayer. Amen and amen, right? He's hungering and he's thirsting after righteousness. So here's some questions that you can ask yourself. Ready? On a scale of 1 to 10... How hungry am I for spiritual things? On a scale of 1 to 10, how hungry am I for spiritual things? What is my attitude toward personal righteousness? How strongly do I feel about the injustice of others? What do I hunger for in life? To what extent do I actually hunger for God's word? What is my attitude toward worship, toward deep spiritual truth? And in what ways am I growing in my love to God? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, this one is obvious. I probably don't have to say anything about it, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's the easy one to understand of all the Beatitudes. But please understand what mercy is not. Mercy is not being tolerant toward wicked and unjust behavior. Mercy is not disdaining discipline for those you supervise, particularly your children, right? Mercy is not just feeling compassion, although feeling compassion is a huge piece of mercy. It doesn't stop at feeling compassion. It has to move to action. Mercy is the Good Samaritan. He's the example for mercy. Because who did he help? Well, the dreaded enemy, 
it was a Jewish person, and Jewish people and Samaritans get along. And all the other Jewish people walk by this guy, and this is a Samaritan who's going to help his enemy. And it's, he sacrificed time because it took him time to take care of this man. Sac- he had to sacrifice money because he set him up with a doctor and then a hotel room until he could get better. He's the perfect example of what it means to be merciful. And so when you're talking about mercy, you have to talk about concepts like love, forgiveness, and action. Frontliners. I know I say this often, but I can't say it enough. But frontliners are are on the front line when it comes to mercy, right? Because these are people who actually are walking into risk every day, but they refuse to stop. They're going to do it because that's what they have to do, and they have the capacity to help others while doing that. But those of us who aren't frontliners, we can still be merciful. We're supposed to be out there too. COVID is the time to go the extra mile and help those who are suffering, who are hurting, that are in our world, the people we know that need help. We need to reach out to them. Blessed are the merciful, for they're the ones that will see mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, since this is the one that allows you to see God, you better get this one right, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so the two key words here are pure and heart. Let's start with heart. Again, always about the heart. The Beatitudes are about the heart. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. Pharisees weren't bad people. They were great people. They would be great neighbors. They're friendly. They go to church every week. They tithe. They're faithful to their family. They read the word of God. But what happened was it became just this superficial shell that they were just had a checkoff list. And they were never cultivating the thoughts and the motives and the attitudes of the heart. This was the problem that the Pharisees had. And God says that heart always counts. He had to remind Samuel the prophet in the Old Testament during the time of Judges, right at the end of Judges, when they were picking the new king, and the new king was David, and so Samuel goes to the house of David, uh, house of Jesse, his father, and he thinks it's one of the older kids. Then he gets to this little kid at the bottom of the list, and God says, that's a guy, right? And Samuel says, really? It's this one? And God has to remind him, don't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Always about the heart. And it means the whole heart, by the way. It means to be wholeheartedly in this pathway, on this pathway, and in this process. Can you imagine if I went home after this and said to my wife, Donna, I just love you 75%. Right? I mean, I am totally in love with you at least by two-thirds of my heart. Right? That work for any of you? (laughs) It's talking about 100%. It's talking about a real pursuit of this. And then he says, what are you pursuing? Well, you're pursuing purity. It's pureness of heart. The Greek word for pure is katharos. Katharos. It means unmixed, unadulterated, sincere, no hypocrisy, no double allegiance. And you're going to hate this illustration, but you know what English word we get from katharos? catheter, right? 
which takes away all the impurities of our life, even when we're not able to do it, right? It's talking about being a pure-minded person whose motives are unmixed. We're pursuing God. We believe in purity. We're pursuing his word. Our consciences are clean. Our devotion is focused, undivided on Jesus. Is this impossible? Well, yes and no, right? (laughs) It doesn't mean that we are absolutely 100% pure even though we're pursuing it 100% of the time, right? It's talking about purity of heart, that we're in it with our 100% heart, but we're still going to fail. We're still going to fall. We're still going to make mistakes, right? And that's when God is ready to pick us up. But we have to be totally committed to the pursuit. It's the movie Rudy. I don't know if you saw this movie years ago about a kid who was a student at Notre Dame. All he wanted to do in life was be on the Notre Dame football team, right? It's all he wanted to do in life. And he actually made the team, last one on the roster. So he never played, but he worked every single day, never late to practice, giving it all he had, leaving it all in the field, right? It's Rudy. Now, in the end of the movie, he actually gets to play a little bit, right? But that's who we are. And the good news is, is that when we fail, we have 1 John 1, 9. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's purity. He brings us back to actual purity. We just pursue it 100% of the time. So this is where you need to be, according to this beatitude, if you want to see God. Now, if you aren't there, I would say start with 1 John 1, 9. Maybe your first step in life is to say, hey, Jesus, I want to be cleansed. So you can do that. You can do that at any moment. You can start on this path, even if you've never done it before, and you can say, yes, I need this cleansing. I need to be cleansed from all sin. I know some of the things I can confess, but this verse promises you'll cleanse me from everything. Start there. Blessed are the peacemakers, For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers since Genesis chapter 4, the first book of the Bible, the fourth chapter, when Cain killed his brother Abel, we've needed this beatitude, right? We've always had this problem in humanity. No beatitude is more relevant or more important than this one today. It just isn't. I once read that since Jesus was here, there have been 15,000, over 15,000 wars, right? That's humanity. A peacemaker is someone who is actively working to reconcile men to God as well as reconcile men to each other. In fact, they are ministers of reconciliation. We have the message of reconciliation in Jesus, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that we are ambassadors with that message. I love that word because it means to be sent. This is our job. We're supposed to go out with the very purpose of being peacemakers, reconciling people to God, and then reconciling people to each other. Charles Swindoll, old-time preacher, he says this, Peacemakers release tension. They don't intensify it. Peacemakers seek solutions. Find no delight in arguments. Peacemakers calm the waters. They don't trouble them. Peacemakers work hard to keep an offense from occurring. And if it has occurred, they strive for resolution. Peacemakers generate more light than heat. I love that last phrase. 
Peacemakers generate more light than heat. And remember that Jesus is the greatest peacemaker, right? It says so in Scripture, Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Not the blood of the cross, the blood of his cross, his death. He's the peacemaker. But it's not just peace this way. He wants us to have peace this way. And he's still the one who does it for us and does it through us. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were off, were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And right there, he's talking about two different ethnic groups, Gentiles and Jews, and they were at war with each other and they despised each other, and he was able to bring them together and break down that hostility wall that was between them. But there is an order to this, right? It's peace with God this way, which allows us to, to work for peace out this way with other people. Now, some people more than just a few probably, have told me to speak up about the election, okay? They want me to speak up. It's upon us. Millions have voted already because of the system we're using this year. Um, This is the most important election ever. You know how many times I've heard that in the last 50 years, right? Now, it may be. It may be. So my word to you is then vote, right? Because it's in your hands. So that's my first word to you is vote. Here's my definitive statement, and the tape's rolling, so this will be forever on tape, right? Here's what I really want to say. If you think that one political party gets it all biblically right and the other gets it all wrong, then you don't know the word of God as well as you think. If you think that what the Bible has to say about the right to life, immigration, global warming, the economy, race, health care, fallen policy, are all fully followed by one party and not the other, you haven't done your homework. You really haven't. You haven't studied the word of God on these tissues. So here's the thing, and maybe this is my real definitive statement, okay? If you think you worship in a church where everybody in the pews feels the same way that you do politically, you don't even know you're Jesus' family, right? Now, the reason I say that is because of this. Will you be a peacemaker or not in all of this? I'm not much of a Facebook guy, but I am stunned by the caustic posts that I see of PAC people saying things as if they have absolutely no regard for someone they sit next to in the pews that holds the opposite view but is a brother and sister in Christ. I'm absolutely stunned by it. Will you be a peacemaker or not? And you have to ask yourself. You should ask it now. You're definitely going to have to ask yourself in mid-November when the election is over. Did I generate more heat or more light? Did I generate more heat 
or more light. So my words to you are this. Do your biblical homework and build up rather than tear down. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this is obviously the longest beatitude, and this is the one that some people separate into two beatitudes. But if you noticed, the first four Beatitudes of these eight, the first four talked about what God wanted to do in us, right? That he wanted us to become poor in spirit, that he wanted us to be people of humility, those who mourn over their sin, those who are meek under the spirits of uh, control, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's what he wants to do in us. And then the next three are what he wants to do through us outwardly, right? Because then he starts talking about the fact that he wants us to be merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers, what we do out here. And in this last beatitude, what he's trying to say is this is the walk of the believer, right? But this walk of the believer is going to face opposition. It will. It's going to face opposition. And it's going to face persecution. In some places of the world, it's tragic and obvious. And it can happen anywhere that once we choose this path there is a spiritual warfare that go, goes on and a great deal of it will be against us who choose this path and all I can say is what he says in this beatitude that God is with us in those motives, mo moments and great is our reward in heaven blessed are this is a formula of the beatitude, right? If you want to be blessed, this is the formula you follow. And God is looking to come alongside of you in this venture. So here's your next step. Sometimes I get to the end of the message and I say, here, here are your next steps. This is just one. You all have one next step. Because you can't read through these beatitudes and not be convicted, right? There's no way, if you were really listening, that some of these stung you, right? as you heard about these things. So your next step is simply this. Choose the one, the beatitude, that most convicts you and start praying through a plan with God to get it right. Choose the one that most convicts you and right now today, start praying through a plan with God in order to get it right. The beatitudes. To be blessed is when God is blessed by our behavior as his followers and then he approves us. So let me pray for all of us in this venture. Father, I thank you for your word. The whole Sermon on the Mount is incredibly challenging. Standards are high. The challenges are huge. But thank you, Father, because when we back away from the specific words, we remember that you've provided everything that we need, that we do have this foundation of forgiveness that you've given to us as we put our faith in Christ and that we have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we never ask to do things, we're never asked to be things, thinking that we have to do it in our own strength. 
But it's the power of God. It's the power of your word that will change us and transform us. And we just make ourselves available with a pure heart, a 100% heart, saying, I'm in the process. And I'm open to what you're going to do in me and then through me. And through this all, we know you'll be by our side. If it gets tough, you'll be there. If it gets easy, you'll be there. And we thank you for that. But we know, Lord, that this is a time when the church needs to stand up and be counted for what is righteous, what is good, what is blessed. May we do so. May we honor you with our lives and our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.